1: the total soccer show my name is Taylor Rockwell and today is Wednesday October 7th which means the transfer window is now closed and it remains a weird time Manchester United and Liverpool conceded 16 between them or 13 between them this past weekend Barcelona might be losing all their players again. The German FA has been raided. It's an odd time to help me make sense of it, to help me make sense of all the moves that have happened. I'm joined by Adam Snavely, aka the Baron Lord Snavington. Adam, thanks for being here.
2: Well, well, well. They finally <laughs> let me back on this podcast. <laughs> Taylor, Taylor, I'm pretty sure that the last time I was on mm-hmm. this podcast, during a an ad read, um Uh-oh. a reference to uh diego maradona and robbie fowler snorting a line of cocaine into Mm -hmm. each other like the lady in the tramp was made so i am i'm excited (laughs) for this i can't wait to uh i can't wait to go over some of this some of this transfer talk with you oh my goodness i forgot about that
1: one um (laughs) we are going to talk about the transfer window we're going to talk about like the most interesting transfers—not the best, not the worst, but the most interesting for whatever reason. But I wanted to start with uh, deadline day for you. I'm assuming it was dramatic. I believe you were chasing down the car of a member of the Glazer family, if Twitter has things correct. You, you know, uh, yeah, I,
2: I was, uh, I was posing as a, um, a <laughs> <laughs> posing as a, a, a fly sports. Uh, correspondent in the United States that had allegedly tracked down a member of the Glazer family mm-hmm. in um, in Lynchburg, Virginia. If you knew <laughs> your your uh, your buildings and your your city topography, uh, yeah, that was a fun that was a fun video. Uh, I'm currently doing some media stuff with um, Jimmy Conrad and the gang that he has assembled over there. I kind of wrote this sketch and then helped film it and then helped emergency cast my wife as a member of the Glazer or uh, maybe, a, that. maybe a member of the Glazer family, maybe just a random passerby that you don't know. Who knows? <laughs> it, the, the fun is in the mystery.
1: Uh, I would say the mystery for me was knowing that you have taken, uh, like you do have the theater background, Jimmy, maybe less so. So the <laughs> accent work was, uh, was revealing. I'll yeah, leave it at that.
2: Sure. No. Uh I I for one was frankly impressed with how much Irish Jimmy had in him. I, I was like, hey, I'll take that. I can work with that. <laughs> um I, I you know, I don't think that my my accent is is perfect by any means or even possibly good at times. Uh but you know we we all try our best.
1: You do. And you've been doing a lot of different stuff, a lot of interesting stuff. You've got the dead, the, the dead Ball. Is it the Dead Ball Brothers podcast or the Dead Ball Pod?
2: Yeah. So it's the podcast name is Dead Ball Brothers and the mm-hmm. handle is at Dead Ball Pod for like Twitter and Instagram and all that stuff. Thank you for that.
1: So you've been doing that. What else have you been up to if people want to uh, get up to date with all things Baron Lords Navington?
2: Yeah. So uh, the Baron Lords Navington has been doing Dead Ball Brothers, which is a podcast with my actual brother, Drew, uh, where we just talk about really ridiculous or weird or bizarre or funny soccer stories from history um whether and kind of like any point in history so i think the first episode started in the 1800s or early 1900s um this last one i think was uh, a 2005 fight between two newcastle players on the field um so you know we we kind of just get into a lot of lost or forgotten history, some more well-known stories, but interesting stuff nonetheless. Um, I also have a newsletter that uses kind of the same branding called Deadball Daily, which at this point really should be called Deadball Daily-ish because I will just have to miss days uh, here or there for the newsletters. But I just kind of use it as a place to link interesting things that I'm reading, funny videos, songs, um, and usually just talk about whatever soccer thoughts happen to be running through my head at the moment. Just put up one about Gunnar Soros and Mesut Ozil today at the time, like right, right before we recorded this. Um, and yeah, and I'm doing also stuff with, um, with Jimmy Conrad, which is both on uh, the Soccer Minute pages on Twitter and on Instagram. And also on Jimmy's Twitch channel, uh, which is twitch.tv slash Jimmy Conrad. You can catch me writing for video, doing some live stuff, and all of that jazz. So I'm currently kind of pretty spread out. Indeed. But with all
1: that said, I appreciate you then taking the time in all the spread to uh, to come talk transfers with me. I have a couple questions uh, to follow up on for a moment. First, I would say we're doing... Soccer 101, we've been doing Soccer 101, which is sort of like, yeah, explainers on on basic concepts or basic moments in history. I do feel like your podcast is more of like soccer, I don't know, 404 or whatever the like, advanced <laughs> classes would be of, yeah. Uh, is that the Kieran Dyer fight that you mentioned?
2: Oh, oh yes, it is. It is absolutely that <laughs> yeah. fight. Uh, the Kieran Dyer, <laughs> Lee Boyer, just just the, <laughs> the moment of confusion where you see two Newcastle players and an Aston Villa player in the scrum and then realize that gareth Barry, the aston villa player is the one breaking up the fight and he's not fighting (laughs) (laughs) is is just a a a real like it's a it's kind of a it's almost a cinematic moment of realization i (laughs) i have a deep love for the the ridiculous parts of the game and i i think that uh our podcast really tries to celebrate those
1: well, I do appreciate that. But that was 2005. Let's talk a little bit more current events. You mentioned Guntersaurus. I am trying to be less cynical, Adam. I'm trying to be more optimistic about the world. And yet, that uh, Mesut Ozil tweet, it felt a little bit like a PR move there of he's aware of how he's perceived. So that was maybe him trying to get some goodwill. I don't know if it worked. What did you make of, of that whole saga?
2: I mean, here's the thing. It- if it was him trying to get goodwill or if it wasn't, it doesn't really matter because uh-huh. what he was saying and what he was doing was just like the correct human thing to do, like trying to help somebody out. Mm-hmm. So I don't really think it matters. Even if it was kind of a cynical grab for goodwill or to get one up over his employer, just because it, it wasn't, it didn't require anything extra it was just him kind of holding up a mirror to arsenal and Mm -hmm. being like this is what you did you cut somebody whose wages are probably minuscule in the grand scheme of things on the same day that you dropped 40 or 50 million uh for a player and Mm -hmm. you know it it just these things don't make sense when you're asking players to take cuts to save jobs but then the jobs still aren't being saved on the same time at the same time it it really was a, a move by Meza Ozil that kind of like the troll was included just in doing the right thing. So mm-hmm. I, I kind of I, I kind of I see both sides of that. And I don't think it ultimately matters very much what his intention was simply because he still at the end of the day was like trying to do a good thing.
1: That's fair. I think it's just that I'm aware that he is on a massive amount of money. So him being like, what a travesty that they're doing this was sort of like, well, I mean, you could take a pay cut, pal. Uh, but I don't really, you know, you sign the contract, you pay the player what you pay them. So I think in the end, I preferred Ford Madison's approach of trying to get Gunnersaurus on loan. That
2: that type of PR move I am all for. You know, Gunnersaurus is a hot commodity on the transfer market right now. <laughs> I am curious to see if... uh an international market will be allowed and exists for him, or if since the transfer window is technically closed, he can only move per se to another English club. But we shall see.
1: Oh, wow, I mean, and there's the language barriers. There's the clo- it's going to be tough. It's going to be tough for him, but I feel like he'll he'll be able to find a new home. Some players have, some players have not. As we've said, the transfer window has closed. We're gonna talk most interesting transfers now, Adam. Why don't you get us started? What is one transfer that you found particularly interesting for whatever reason?
2: Right. I'm gonna take this one. I'm gonna I'm gonna use this one first because I feel like you possibly also might talk about this, and I want to get it in so you can't steal it, and we could just get it out of the way first. Um, and that's Sam Mewis to Manchester City. But in a broader kind of way, it's about all of these women's national team players going to England. It's about, it's about everyone basically. And the reason that it's interesting to me is I kind of noticed this thing happening um, after the 2019 world cup. And it felt like there started to become this, this very, this opinion that was crystallizing amongst a lot of people that the, in terms of the top women's players in the game the top 5 the top 10 whatever you didn't see necessarily as many members of the US women's national team as i think you would have and my my personal kind of like rallying cry and thing that i got most angry about was at the end of 2019 when i think it was the guardian released their top 100 women's players in the game at the moment i think they rated crystal done 17th or 18th unacceptable. Um, and, and I was, and I was upset. I, I, I didn't take that very well. <laughs> I'm curious with Sam Lewis and with Rose Lavelle going to Manchester city, which is a club that's really trying to do something with their women's team. Clearly with all the other transfers yep. they have done at the same time. I'm curious if all of these players from the U S going to the WSL If they start performing really well in the WSL and becoming those top players, do we have to shake up these power rankings at all of of the top women currently in the game?
1: What do you think that would look like then? Would it just be sort of like those five, the ones who've moved, at least the ones by my count who've moved, uh Lavelle, Mewis, you mentioned, Alex Morgan, to Spurs, uh, Tobin Heath and Christian Preston, Manchester United. Do you feel like suddenly, is it like in the top 10, they're all in the top five?
2: I don't know if I, I don't know if they all like launch themselves into the top five. I think that Sam Mewis and Rose Lavelle certainly have that capability um, and are probably the ones that are best situated to kind of I I guess put themselves into that conversation just because I feel like Manchester city now is in a position where you are knocking on the door of teams like Wolfsburg and teams like Lyon, who have been dominating the women's game in Europe for quite some time. Um, And, and I think clearly want to challenge those teams in the champions league. And I think that you can, put that conversation out there for those people that have made the transfer. But I also feel like you have to look at it in the the broader context of like, you know, maybe it wasn't that the U S women's national team had 20 players that were all in the top 20 to 50 of the U S of the women's game as a whole. Maybe it was that a bunch of them actually were top 10 and top 15 players.
1: Mm -hmm. I'm, Really interested in a lot of these moves. Um, I would say a large part of that is from the, I think it was Kim McCauley has long held that, like, if a club invested a fraction of what they invest into even just like their transfers for one window into the women's game, because the women's game has been so historically underfunded, you really could create a very strong competitive team pretty quickly. I would say Manchester United struggling. I think they were in the second division maybe two seasons ago, maybe last season. Now they're up. I think it was two seasons ago they were up, then they've been up. But they bring in two world-class players. Does that elevate them? And I think that's what I'm interested in, is do you see some of these teams continue to invest relatively small sums of money compared to some of the other moves we're going to talk about today and yet have that big success that kind of catapults them to that next level in the women's game. I think that's really going to be interesting and something that I especially want to keep an eye on.
2: I mean, I think uh, to go back to the 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 example of Manchester City, if you just look at what they did this transfer yep. window with Roosevelt, with Sam Mewis, with Lucy Bronze, which is a, a massive acquisition. Uh, yes. I mean, Lucy Bronze being kind of a consensus top five top three player in the world probably over the last several years um you can see a team that already was good like already was one of the best teams in england that spent money that for the men's side of of the transfer window it wouldn't it wouldn't it doesn't compare it it is still like a fraction of what they spent but They have immediately taken themselves from very good English team to team that can possibly win the Champions League, which is something that, you know, only two teams have done for the last however many years. And the men's time, men's team might
1: once again not be capable of doing either. So you get Men's City winning the Champions League. I'm sure they'll take that. Uh, my final question for you in this one would be you spotlighted Sam Mewis specifically uh, and then said, you know, it's part of a larger move. But why did you go with Sam Mewis over, say, Rose
2: Lavelle? Um, because Sam Mewis is absolutely everywhere on the field every time she plays the game, and I don't understand it. Um, <laughs> <clears throat> I... Uh, <laughs> I feel like Sam U.S. is one of those people that it's easy to underappreciate as opposed to somebody like Rose Lavelle. It's easy to appreciate Rose Lavelle. Rose Lavelle has immaculate touches on the ball. Rose Lavelle can dribble. Rose Lavelle can shoot. She can do all of the things and the the very easily noticeable things that indicate that she is a good soccer player. A lot of the time, Sam U.S. can be a little bit underappreciated. But I, I think if we look back at the World Cup, I mean, a lot of the reason that Lindsey Horan didn't play in the World Cup and before the World Cup, people were talking about Lindsey Horan as one of the best midfielders in the world, if not the best midfielder in the world. Lindsey Horan like didn't start and didn't play in a lot of the World Cup essentially because of Sam Mewis a lot of the time. Like Sam Mewis was that important to the team as that presence that was kind of running around in front of Julie Ertz as Julie Ertz Managed to hold down the middle of the defense she's so good at covering space blocking lanes and then also capable going forward into attack so I I think that Sam Mewis's contributions on the field can be one of those people that are a little bit easier to miss than Rose Lavelle so that's why I specifically targeted Sam Mewis because I think that Sam Mewis should be also in that conversation for one of the best players in the world but it's easier to put her lower
1: an awful lot more transfer conversation still to come between myself and Mr. Adam Snavely, the Baron Lord Snavington, as he is obviously well-known. But first, I wanted to let you know that today's episode of The Total Soccer Show is brought to you by Hymns. forhims.com is a one-stop shop for hair loss, skin care, and sexual wellness for men. We are talking about transfers. Uh, if your hair seems to be transferring away from your head then you are not alone. 66% of men do start to lose their hair by the age of 35. Uh, So that's why you sometimes see bald goalkeepers, because they tend to play after the age of 35, whereas other players do not. They haven't quite yet started to see that recession, see that thinning hair. Uh, The hairline is not yet moving back, but maybe by the time of 35 it is. The best way to prevent further hair loss, or any hair loss at all, is to do something about it while you still have some. And that is where Hims comes in. Hims is helping guys be the best version of themselves with licensed medical providers and FDA-approved products to help treat hair loss. That means no snake oil, no crossing the fingers and hoping it works, no buying a strange packet of pills from a sketchy gas station counter-supplement salesperson who doesn't quite seem like they know the medical background. Uh, instead, you are getting real licensed products, as I said, from real licensed medical professionals online, which means no more awkward in-person doctors Visits or long lines at the pharmacy. It's completely confidential and discreet, and the products are shipped directly to your door. Again, discretion is the word. Today, Hims is giving you their best offer yet. If you're not happy with your results after 90 days, Hims will give you a full refund. And right now, our listeners can get their first visit absolutely free. Go to forhims.com/slash total soccer. That's forhims.com/slash total soccer. Here's your disclaimer. Full refund of price paid available for first 90 days supply. Refund requests must be made between 90 and 180 days after product shipment delivered. Prescription product requires an online consultation with a medical professional who will determine if a prescription is appropriate. Restrictions apply. See website for full details and important safety information. But remember one last time, that's fourhimscom slash Total Soccer. Thank you very much to Forhims for sponsoring this episode and for giving me for my extended baldness analogy and transfer analogy. That is, speaking of transfers, let's get back to Adam Snavely. All right. So that's Sam Mewis to Man City. Man City currently fifth in the table right now, but only three games played. Not necessarily a crisis there. Arsenal joint top of the Women's Super League with Everton, who are themselves top of the men's side of the Premier League. And I would like to talk Everton for a moment, if you don't mind, Mr. Snavely. Oh, let's talk the toffees. All right. Uh, I'm just going to go with the obvious one. Hamas Rodriguez moving on a free, which is something I forgot. I assumed there was a transfer fee, forgetting that it was a free transfer from Real Madrid to Everton. And it has obviously worked out quite well so far. Uh, And the thing I want to spotlight here is actually something that Daryl pointed out. Because it's easy, I think it would have been easy at least this summer to think of James Rodriguez as a player who was very good, didn't quite achieve that potential, hasn't had the success we thought he would, moved around a little bit, and now we don't know what to make of him. Daryl's argument was remembering what he was for Colombia, what he was for Monaco in that season, that if you build the team around him and sort of put him in a position where he's allowed to do whatever he wants and everybody works off of that, he will thrive. And I do think that's what we're th- we're seeing. I think Carlo Ancelotti has put him in a position where he is comfortable, where he feels confident again. And then I think the other key part of this, while we're mentioning other signings, would be that the additions of Alan and Ducore. Really solidifies that midfield and gives him that base to play off of, and I think is a massive part of why Everton have started the way they have.
2: Yeah, I think it's really easy to forget that Himes is only twenty nine years old. Um, yeah, because we've been—it feels like we've been talking about him for so long. You know, yep. we ever since—I mean, at least since I think we can agree that the the public conscious towards Himes and and in general people being aware of him at the at the at an international kind of star level was probably the 2014 World Cup. Um
0: yeah.
2: even though he was a very important player for Colombia before that World Cup, I think that that was a pretty decent point where you could say, yeah, coming out party for James Rodriguez. For Colombia, for Monaco, he was that central player and he had the type of performance at the World Cup that warrants the type of moves that he subsequently got. But I think that we almost ran into this thing where we kind of discovered Jaime's too late, almost. When you think about teams that are built around one player, obviously you think about a team like Barcelona and Messi, who has been there forever and was there as a kid and quickly became known as the guy. We're we have high who was playing for Monaco and Monaco has alternated between being a good and mediocre team over the years. Um, probably never going to be a great team or at least, at least won't be a great team for a very long time, barring some questionable money as, yeah. <laughs> as one does. Um, but you saw him move to Real Madrid. You saw him move to Bayern Munich. And these are teams that already have such a an unbelievably strong core of players that no coach in the world really is going to rip all that up to put a new player at the heart of it, probably. And you saw Jaime still play well in those situations. It was just, you know, oh, he didn't. he never became the star player. He never became the guy because there were already the guys on those teams. And yeah. you're moving now to a slightly smaller club. And and people kind of say like, oh, maybe he's just a smaller club player and not a big club player. I think that if Real Madrid or Bayern Munich had made the decision to, you know, we're just going to build around high Mace and kind of like blow it up. I think that maybe you probably have a season or two where obviously there's some growing brains and transitions, but I think that he would be just as successful there. You're just seeing... A coach who is a very, very good coach has, I mean, Carlo Ancelotti has as good of credentials in as anybody in the international game at this point in time. And you see him trusting a player, putting him in the middle, and seeing what happens. And now all of a sudden, Everton are a team that can dream. Yeah.
1: And I think, and I think with that in mind, It's also worth looking at, like, how they're able to go from a fantasy to a dream that seems kind of rooted in reality, because Everton a few seasons ago do not have Carlo Ancelotti in charge. They have up and coming managers like Marco Silva, who maybe aren't that up and coming, or there's David Moyes before him. There's Ronald Koeman, but maybe that's not working. Like, it feels like they're sort of trying different things that could lead to big success and could lead to that next level, but also could not do that, which is more often what was the case. With Carlo Ancelotti, you have this instant name recognition. I think you're going to get more players looking at you as a result, and I think that then explains why Alan is willing to come, having the uh, previous connection. So too does James. But even, let's say, Ducore. I think Ducore could have helped a lot of different Premier League teams. That he goes to Everton, I think, is a testament to that. They're willing to pony up the cash that they need to, but also that they have more of that name recognition that maybe makes those players believe this could go somewhere. This could be Europa League. This could be even more. You never know. I think they've also done other smart things. The other thing I wanted to note with Everton was the signing of Robin Olsen on loan from Roma. I don't think he's necessarily going to supplant Jordan Pickford right away. Uh, I've heard a couple other podcasts making this argument, and I buy into it, that at the very least he arrives to provide consistent competition to Jordan Pickford, which I do believe is something he hasn't necessarily had. I think that probably does help him raise his game. I would expect it does. If not, then maybe Olsen takes over. But even then, like little moves like that I think could be very smart down the line if it does lead to a return to form for Jordan Pickford, who is kind of the weak link of this Everton team at the moment. You get him playing well. I think top four is is realistic, which is definitely not something I would have said prior to the window. So well done to Everton. Well done to James and everyone else involved. That is my first one. Adam, let's go back to you. Where should we head next?
2: You know, we're we're gonna head to Turkey, but we are doing it with a little a little bridge from the Everton. Um, I'm going to throw a name out at you. Kevin Morelish. Ah uh, yes,
1: <laughs> <laughs> I think like I know where we're going with this.
2: Yeah, so you sound like you probably have heard where I'm going with this. I don't know uh-huh. if if the audience knows particularly where I'm going with this. This one is interesting me, interesting to me, just just purely in a dumb way because of yep. what transpired at his signing for Gaziantep. Um, uh, yeah, which I. I Actually, I have no idea if I'm pronouncing that correctly. I'm just kind of going phonetically on that one. Yeah. Um,
1: Gaziantep Spore, I think it is.
2: Yeah. Um, so Gaziantep, this, this team in Turkey, signed Mr. Morelish, former longtime Everton servant, and uh, Belgian international. Pretty good player for, in his day. Um, for some reason, I, I, I actually don't know why this happened, but they... Introduced him with a giant platter of baklava, <laughs> ah, that said "Happy Birthday, Kevin" around around like the the ring of the platter. Which it was it was his birthday, so that does make sense. I'm just confused at the presence of the baklava and why that was the particular um, that was the particular treat that they decided to go with. I. I'm completely in the dark on that one. If anybody can can get back to me on that, that would be very, very appreciated.
1: I am going to take a shot and say that Gaziantep is where they make pistachios, or they're like a big provider of that. Like, I'm going to assume the baklava there is, you know, one of those. It's world famous, even though I think everybody claims their baklava is world famous.
2: I would hope it would be an answer like that and not an answer like, Oh, he played for Olympiakos, Greece. You know, that would be, (laughs) you know, the Gaziantep being around a place where they make a lot of baklava seems like a lot better connection than just, Mm -hmm. he played for a Greek team once. So, I will hope for that also included in this very odd transfer saga. for This is the
1: thing. If, if, if it's what I think you're about to say, this is the thing I thought you were going to say in the beginning.
2: Well, I'm, I'm going to go there because in the, the graphic that they made to announce. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I'm talking about? Mm -hmm. They had this as, as teams typically do, they had this kind of graphic made up and they decided to go with three separate pictures of Kevin and they were all in Everton jerseys, which makes sense because that's probably where he's most famous for playing. And the two kind of in the back were a little bit more like faded, like a little bit more transparent. And then there was the big one in the front. And unfortunately, I'm pretty sure it was yeah. the one in the front was a picture of Morgan Schneiderlin and yeah. not of Kevin Morelish. Yeah. And, God, it was just so beautiful. I I it, this is this is the sweet spot of very dumb things in soccer that I live my life on all the time. I I just they look vaguely similar when vaguely. when they are yelling, I guess. But otherwise they are just two Caucasian men that have a lot of veins in their neck and have beard. And I think that was pretty much it.
1: Uh, I did some. I did some. Some googling. Gaziantep province uh, is an important trading center since ancient times. is known as one of Turkey's major manufacturing zones, and its agriculture is dominated by the growing of pistachio nuts. So that one, I'm guessing, is the explanation. The Kevin Morales Morgan Schneiderlin one, I have less of an explanation on, other than I'm hoping whoever is in charge of social media just. Googled like Kevin Morales Everton and saw a photo of him hugging Morgan Schneider and was like, yeah, it's that one. Why not? And went with that one. I really don't know what else it could be. We get these mistakes from time to time. Uh, FC Cincinnati did this with their coaching hire. They absolutely I don't know did. what happens there. I don't know why people don't fact check those or don't just take that extra minute just to make sure. You would assume they do, but then they don't. And it leads to stories like this.
2: At, at any rate, I think this is a, an important reminder that uh, your social media employees are not just interns and are very valuable members of the club. Um, so <laughs> yeah. shouts out to all the social, social media managers yeah. out there. Uh, you have a tough job and I don't envy you. Nor do I because
1: one little slip up or one major slip up and then you're a laughing stock instead of bringing in a good player to a team that maybe people weren't aware of aside from their pistachio production. So Kevin Morales to Gaziansep, I like that one. Since you've gone with a sort of stranger one, I will go with uh, one that didn't even happen. It is not Jaden Sancho. I will probably talk about him in a bit. It is instead Arcadius Milic of Napoli. I'm going to say he is a the kind of big loser of this transfer window. This is a transfer that did not end up going down. He reportedly turns down an approach from Tottenham, who instead went after Carlos Vinicius. Uh, Milik also linked with, I believe, Juventus, Roma, Everton, Newcastle, Arsenal, and Fulham. The Everton one, again, made a lot of sense because of the connection to Carlo Ancelotti. It seems like he would have been like part of that strike like strike force. Maybe he strikes Starks right away, maybe he's a substitute, but either way, it seemed like it would have worked. Instead, he decides, nope, I'm gonna stay here, I'm gonna see out the final year of my deal, and then I'm going to to leave on a free, which I understand if you are an informed striker who the coach can't afford not to play. But Gennaro Gattuso has no obligation to play him and, by all accounts, is not going to play him. Milik seems to have annoyed Napoli's board, which means they're not going to put pressure on Gattuso to play him. And if he's leaving on a free, they're not going to get any money, so or not at least as much as they would. So he's now about to be 27 in February, will have played very little minutes, minutes on the eve of the Euros. I'm assuming he still goes for Poland, but since he's not in form, he probably doesn't have as strong of a tournament as he would otherwise. So maybe he doesn't get that fee that he might be looking for. But in the end, this felt like a player who could have moved to another club. Lots of different clubs wanted him, wanted him specifically for what he brings, what he offers. It's not as much of a roll of the dice. And instead, he's kind of rolled the dice for the next year. And I think it could come back to bite him. So Milik not moving is one of my transfers that I thought was most interesting.
2: Yeah, I, I think that, I mean, you have a, a classic example of a player trying to play the transfer window game and c- it kind of coming back to bite him. <clears throat> also <laughs> when you are managed by Henry Rogatuso it, it is a, a I'll say you're prodding the bull <laughs> in in in, yeah. in, in, uh, in in kind and nice terms uh he's a he's a person who seems like he would take a lot of things personally in general um yeah <laughs> and yes, somebody that, that I would never want to anger but it's also this kind of weird situation where <clears throat> okay you have this Polish striker who was kind of like heavily linked to Tottenham and it didn't end up happening, but even for him in a lot of these transfers, I don't know if, I mean like say he does move to Tottenham is his primary role then just being back up to Harry Kane. Is it, we want Harry Kane to have more pressure slash when Harry Kane inevitably gets hurt. And then when he inevitably tries to rush himself back from injury, we have somebody there. Um, and and even for Poland, like he's not starting over Robert Lewandowski. So what is this player going to be at the age of twenty seven? Maybe still a backup if he does like kind of like secure right. that dream move or what you would consider a dream move. Um I, I I just it's kind of hard to see where he actually fits in at a lot of clubs that were like trying to get him.
1: That's a really good point, man, because you're right. Like, like if you look at like the Tottenham link for a moment, I think it does make sense for the two reasons you suggested. I think he is probably being looked at as a deputy to Harry Kane if and when Kane is injured or if he needs a break, especially given the number of fixtures Tottenham will have this season. I think that makes sense. I think it probably is also Jose Mourinho knowing that Harry Kane has been the... Man, when it comes to being a center forward for Tottenham, obviously Son Heung-min can score goals, but Harry Kane is Harry Kane. But at a certain point, that can lead to a little bit of relaxation of the intensity. And I imagine Arcadius Mellick coming in would have provided that extra boost. He could have been an impact sub. But you're right. It also then is maybe him not wanting to be a backup. I don't know how he doesn't end up being a backup short of going to a slightly smaller team, like kind of like a James Rodriguez going to a team that maybe are slightly below his stature, but then he's a starter there. It just seems like a lot of potentials, whereas he could have had a few more certainties this window.
2: Yeah. He, it seems like he possibly needed to, to really capitalize on some interest this window Mm -hmm. and, now you're kind of stuck in a situation where I, you know, it, similar to James Rodriguez, like it's a little bit harder to find a team now that's going to build around me.
1: Yeah. Yeah. All right. So we shall see what happens with Arcadius Millick. What we expect to happen is for him not to play very many minutes this season. We'll see if I end up being horrifically wrong. If so, I'm sure Adam will make fun of me. Uh, but until then, Adam, where should we go next?
2: Uh, I am going to go to Germany. Z German. All right. Let's talk about him. Um, specifically, I want to talk about Justin Clivert to Leipzig. <gasps> that was on my honorable mention. D-ject, yeah. But I like yeah. It. yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So we have Justin Clivert, who is this, this kind of, I think he played on the left mostly for Roma. He is this winger who is the person that just wants to dribble all day long. That's kind of his thing. He is ridiculously talented on the ball. We know this. Um, He hasn't been able to make that... I I guess what I'm saying, he hasn't really been able to take that and make himself a consistently productive pro. At least he wasn't with Roma. And I have this pinpointed as a very interesting transfer because I am very curious to see... If he's able to make that leap with Julian Nagelsmann in the Leipzig setup, because I think that there is some interesting ways that you can utilize him in that team.
1: How do you expect him to be utilized or what are the the ways in which he could be?
2: Well, Julian Nagelsmann kind of uh, took the piss out of me when I was like building this because, you know, he just beat Schalke for nothing and he did it with a 4-2-3-1. And I was like, OK, yeah. that's not fun. That's not interesting. <laughs> that's not why we follow you, you dummy. Um, but this this <laughs> three four three that he has been utilizing and specifically the place that Emil Forsberg plays in that side where he usually has that line of four uh at the beginning of the season with the the Kevin Campbell, Tyler Adams double pivot in the middle. Um that's kind of just like patrolling all, all around there. And then you have that that top three where there's not it's it's Yusuf Paulson playing striker, and then it's not wingers per se but it's also not number 10s per se it's just two people that are kind of in a little bit more of a, a freer role underneath the striker i'm very curious to see justin cliver play in that role because i think that when you saw him in some of his most effective and best moments for roma he's a winger and a traditional winger in the sense that he wants to run at you and he wants to beat you, but he's also not a traditional winger in the sense that he also finds himself in the middle of the field. So often he, he really likes to run with the ball and, and cut in and get into the middle of the field. And I'm curious to see with Nagelsmann set up, if Nagelsmann can kind of take that and make that a more consistently productive threat than it was at Roma.
1: I personally think he can, and I think he will, and that's why I had him somewhere on my list. I'm not sure if he was honorable mentions or even in my top five, but I I, it, I think for the reasons you've already hit upon, uh, Justin Clavert was one who I thought was going to have a lot of success when he moves from Ajax to Roma. He is moving on loan, so we'll see what happens, but I feel like in the end this has made a permanent deal because Nagelsmann and Leipzig have such clear vision for what they want to do, even if what they want to do is a lot of different things and a lot of different games. But I think sometimes when you've got this, I I would say like Mercurial is how I would have described him, at least when he moves from Ajax to Roma, that he is very skillful, very quick, but then occasionally is maybe overly elaborate or doesn't get the best out of a situation. I feel like we saw a decent amount of that in Rome. I feel like Nagelsmann kind of streamlines things. It's like, no, get rid of that, get rid of that, do that, do more of that. And and we see him sort of round into this very efficient, productive member of that team, which I think only benefits him long term and in his career. So I was really excited by this because it felt like one of those Leipzig identifying a player who they could get for the right amount of money but mold into somebody that they either keep for a long time and is very productive or they end up flipping for a lot of money maybe two years down the road
2: yeah I, and as a Dortmund fan it, it is a little bit of a, a I was gonna media, about that. a taboo thing to say but as an appreciator of the sauce uh, a a precious commodity in soccer, which Justin Cliver possesses in abundance. I would really, really like, just as a a pure soccer fan, I would just love to see him succeed with the game that he has. Because I think that that the kind of like the magician and and specifically mm-hmm. the way that he goes about his ball skills which are a little bit more flashy more ronaldinho than messi i would say kind of in the in the grand scheme of people doing tricky things on the field yeah um i just think that there is i mean especially in today's game a a dearth of that type of player as Pressing and counter pressing and the kind of the evolution of the number 10 to be somebody that's typically more of a person that's playing on the wing. Um, I, I just I miss that in soccer a lot these days, and I think that he has those abilities and I want to see him succeed so that I can continue seeing that in soccer.
1: All right. I, see, I just like having other reasons to enjoy watching Leipzig aside from just obsessing over Tyler Adams, because if he doesn't play, I then get very sad. But if Justin Clavert is playing and Tyler Adams isn't, I still will then be very excited to watch Leipzig. Hello, podcast friends. This is Taylor interrupting myself one more time to let you know that this episode of the Total Soccer Show is brought to you by Manscaped. I talked earlier about FourHims.com and how they are helping men with the common problem of hair loss. The more frustrating problem is that that hair loss tends to occur, the hairline tends to recede, and then the hair seems to migrate to the nose and the ears. I don't know what it is, but I know like your feet and your ears and your nose. I think continue to grow throughout your life. I think that goes doubly so for ear hair and nose hair. I apologize if you're listening to this episode very early and you didn't really want to picture my ear's hair or my nose hair. You're welcome to picture your own or someone else's if you prefer. But the point would be that if you want to deal with that hair, uh, then Manscaped would like you to know about the Weed Whacker nose and ear hair trimmer. It is the only nose hair trimmer on the market with a powerful and rechargeable lithium-ion battery that lasts up to 90 minutes of use. So if you've got a lot of hair, if you are a werewolf or you have not maybe dealt with that nose hair in 40 years, let's say. Uh, it's probably long. You probably want to like go after it, but you might need a little bit of heavy-duty work, and 90 minutes should cover that. Uh, the Weed Whacker uses a 9,000 RPM motor-powered 360-degree rotary dual-blade system, which again means it's fancy and good. Its intelligently contoured design enhances the trimming experience. It's waterproof, so you're not worried about that one drop of water, as I've said previously. But the point is, it will do the job, it will do it well, and it will do it Quickly. Uh, it could also do it for 20% off, uh, and free shipping if you use the code TSS20 at manscaped.com. And that is good for all the products, not just the Weed Whacker, but any of the many, many products available at Manscaped. Uh, but again, that's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com using the code TSS20. What are you waiting for? They ask. Go whack your weeds, they say, and I guess I do too. Thank you very much to Manscaped for sponsoring this episode. Now back to Adam Snavely, I'm assuming not whacking his weeds, at least not while we talk. You mentioned Dortmund uh, and your sort of connection to them. I'm guessing other teams of the Buddhist League of Strengthening is not your favorite. Before we get to my next pick, I wanted to ask you about Dortmund's window and if you liked everything they did and refused to do.
2: Well, I loved what they refused to do. I was eagerly eating popcorn as I just scrolled through Manchester United <laughs> fans. Just absolutely, yeah. it, it was it was sad, but in an entertaining way. How they how they continued. I'm glad to, our pain has sustained you. Yeah, know, it, it was a, it was excellent sustenance for me over the transfer window. <laughs> I, I you know nothing in the transfer window is certain, and I think obviously I expected before this transfer window for Jadon Sancho to be gone. I didn't expect him mm-hmm. to still be here in any regard um and i think that obviously in the transfer window nothing is certain i know this for a fact as a dartman fan with the kind of departure of usman dembele when that occurred um if Jaden sancho had decided to stop showing up to training and just holding out on the team then obviously something probably would have happened this transfer window but he did not. Uh, and I think that holding on to him this season is a major coup for Dortmund because this is kind of the point in Sancho's development where Dortmund usually sells. And at this time, people didn't meet the asking price. And so now you have an interesting situation where, okay, Dortmund have a little bit more consistency in the attack with the just anomaly that is Erling Holland and Jaden Sancho playing under him if you have Gio Reyna, Jude Bellingham, other people taking steps and and making the leap into big time professional players this season, Dortmund could actually make some noise and possibly pull down some silverware which is, you know, kind of the the consistent I guess I guess it's it's what we as Dortmund fans consistently bemoan is that we always sell players and we are always a good team, but are rarely the team at this point that is actually winning the trophies, whether that's domestically or internationally. Uh, And so now you kind of have more of a, all right, this timeline, I could see it possibly happening. Are we going to keep on? Are we going to hold on to Jaden Sancho forever? No. Are we going to hold on to Erling Holland forever? No, most likely not. Um, I kind of expect both of them to be gone by next summer, but, and on the whole right now, if Dortmund can just figure out how to get more consistent performances out of this team, I think that they have a chance maybe at the Bundesliga and certainly in cup competitions where you are uh, form is more up and down and, and doesn't necessarily matter mm-hmm. as much.
1: Yeah, I, I think I would agree with with pretty much everything you said there because strangely I think in the end Jaden Sancho staying at Dortmund not moving to Manchester United probably works out for all parties though I think for Manchester United it's more accidental than intentional the reporting I am really enjoying after the transfer doesn't happen the different journalists who clearly have connections to either club like reporting one side of facts versus another side of facts the Manchester United narrative has thus far been that When they did the calculations, their figures were something like the entire deal would cost them 250 million euros between the 120 million fee, then his wages, then agent fees on top of that, uh, plus Premier League fees. And I think the idea there was that that was not worth it in the coronavirus time period. Uh, That is the narrative of Manchester United is worth remembering that they have... That said, still been linked with him and still been trying to bring him in. So I think as it became less and less likely, it became more of a like, well, the wages were a problem. Well, the fee was a problem, as though they didn't know those things all along. I I think they will not end up necessarily regretting it. But I think Jaden Sancho stays with Dortmund. I think he will have a strong season. I think he probably does end up moving, as you said. I don't think he ends up moving to Manchester United because there's some great reporting in The Athletic that, I think their initial offer did not meet his current wages at Dortmund. Their second offer just barely exceeded it with some like fairly unlikely performance incentives. I think their final one was more to his liking, but still not in that top, top tier. And I think other clubs may be willing to offer him that. But more to the point, other clubs might maybe be less shambolic or of a train wreck than Manchester United are. So I think we may see him say, move to Man City, back to Man City. If he goes to England, there's other clubs now being rumored in, in, uh, in Europe and elsewhere. So we'll see what happens with Jaden Sancho. But I think this entire saga was really fascinating. And I think, especially so when you look at it from what happened with Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang, what happened with Robert Lewandowski, this to me again was Dortmund learning from the past, sticking to their guns, establishing a date. That date's gone by. All right, we're not budging. This is how things are now. I think they left the door open to be completely blown away. If Man United came back and said, we'll give you 150 million or something like that, then I think they maybe would have gone for it. But I think in the end, Dortmund showed themselves to be like inflexible and flexible at the exact same time in the exact right way. I think Jaden Sancho maybe wanted the move, but wasn't publicly agitating. So I don't think the situation there is anything approximating untenable. And then I think the other moves they did, uh, Dortmund, were were pretty solid. I think Gio Reyna has rounded into form. I think Jude Bellingham has become a very important figure for them. Thomas Mounier is well on a free. Uh, I don't know yet what to make of Rainier Jesus. I thought he would be very good on loan from Real Madrid, but pretty early days and Emre Jean on a permanent. So I thought... All of their business was really, really smart. And then my final thing for Dortmund is just that I think I'm correct in saying that this is kind of the third time in less than a year, in like eight months, nine months, that they have kind of embarrassed Manchester United because they beat them to Erling Holland. They offer him a better deal. He ends up going there. There was some interest for Man United. Same thing for Jude Bellingham. Now they've held on to Jaden Sancho. It just seems like Dortmund are going to beat Manchester United every time. I hope they don't meet each other in the Champions League because I wouldn't expect those results to be any different.
2: Well, it's hard for most clubs to beat Dortmund at this point because in addition to what Dortmund offers just purely objectively and uh, like monetarily to younger players, it is impossible to argue at this point that they are not the best place in the world for young players that are looking to make the Mm leap from, I am a good young prospect that's possibly playing on a smaller team or in a smaller league to, I am one of the best players in the world. It's, it's just impossible not to make that argument. So in addition to, you know, people like Holland choosing Dortmund over Manchester United, people like Jude Bellingham making his way over there, you know, it's it's impossible to ignore that it's really just become this kind of finishing school for for these top prospects to go and and make noise in the transfer window. At the end of the day, you know Dortmund on Sancho, they had a price for him, but they weren't in any position where they had to sell. So right, you know, if you're Manchester United and like, oh, I think that I think that Dortmund's going to blink. I think that was a silly tactic to take in the transfer window, and it really made the rest of their transfer window at the end of it feels super rushed when yep. it felt pretty obvious from the get go that Dortmund weren't going to blink.
1: No. And they didn't and I think it was really obvious. I think the stories we're getting now in in these like and in the next coming days are all damage control from Manchester United. What I tend to believe more is a lot of the reporting about Solskjaer being frustrated, Solskjaer really wanting Jadon Sancho Even the reporting of I think to to the joke you were making in your video with Jimmy Conrad that like I think Ed Woodward was sort of desperately trying to get the Glazers to sign off on more money and they were just not having it. And I think there is a lot of indecision in the club about how to spend money and when to spend money and what they want to invest in uh, or if they want to invest at all. So I think the dysfunction for Manchester United very telling. And even if some of their business, I guess this is my transition. I'll just keep going then. Uh, this is my transition to my next one, which is uh, the business that Manchester United did end up doing. They bring in Donny van de Beek, but Daryl and I talked about that as him being not necessarily an automatic starter because they sort of have two guaranteed starters in the spots where he would expect to play. They bring in Alex Telles, uh, left back from Porto. Their first signing. I did not realize this until last night. Their first left back signing since Luke Shaw in 2014. <laughs> and he signed you. Two center- or two left backs in six to seven years. That's not great. Um, but Telus is obviously second choice because uh, Reguillon was the original one who was linked. He ends up with Tottenham. More on him later from me. Uh, they get uh, Facundo Palestri and Ahmad Diallo. Two for the future, but not right now. Edinson Cavani could end up being a smart move, and there are reasons I've heard other people smarter than I make the arguments for why it could be a good move. But I think to your point... No matter how good he plays, no matter how much of an impact he has, it will still be good, but the way in which he came in and the apparent chaos around it still makes it look like it was a, okay, we'll just go for that guy then because we couldn't get this one or this one or this one or this one or this one. So in the end, even a good move still looks a little bit bad.
2: I do wonder a little bit if the Cavani move was, you know, because there was there's so much talk about oh, what are Manchester United going to do about right wing, and that was kind of a position that a lot of people identified as something that they need to address. Um, are we going to play X Jesus himself, Mason Greenwood out there? Um, but I am wondering a little bit if the Edinson Cavani move is a, is a thought, if if the thought process at all is to possibly say, well, we could play Edinson Cavani at center forward and move Martial out to the wing again. And do it like that, um, and play uh, and play Rashford and Martial on the wings with you know kind of a more classic hold up striker. I, I will always, I will never forget <laughs> the report that uh, Ole was having uh, Rashford and Martial do these practice like near post runs and practice scoring crappy goals last season because there was a report that he was frustrated that they always were trying to score like worldies. Mm-hmm. They were always trying to go for the most impressive goals, and they couldn't seem to finish away the simple chances. So I I get why people say, like, Edison Cavani is actually a sneakily good move. He, he's being paid a lot, sure, mm-hmm. and he is not in his prime, absolutely true. But he is a type of player that I think you could argue that Manchester United have kind of lacked over the years where he is known as being a really hard worker. He's known as being yep. a person that is going to be a leader on the team and is going to grind out victories. He's somebody that's not afraid of ugly soccer, even though he is a very talented player and can can play pretty soccer in his own right. So I think that there is reason to think that that could be a good move, but yep. it's impossible for it to be a satisfying move for a Manchester United fan, you know?
1: That is that is really well said. Yes, because even if it is a good move, I think you're right. It's not a satisfying move. I do. That is the narrative I do buy into that he is brought in for his work rate, his leadership, his kind of veteran experience, and that he won't tolerate nonsense because looking at the way man united played uh, this past weekend it's not a lot of defensive work right from those attackers it's not dropping into cover it leaves their defense exposed at times i don't know if he is going to be the one to drop back and do all that work i certainly don't think anthony marcial is if he's pushed out to the wing <laughs> but i do think that bruno fernandez loses his mind at halftime yelling at harry Maguire. i think because he expects the team to perform to his standards, to play better, to care, to fight. And I have to believe Edson Cavani is in that same mold of isn't going to tolerate people not tracking back, people not uh, performing to the best of their ability. So I think it does make sense. He does bring a lot of the things you would want in a player. It's just the way he ends up arriving makes it feel like it wasn't a plan. It was an accidental solution like on the fly. And so it still leaves a lot of questions around Manchester United in a window where I think they were trying to remove as many of those as they could. So questions for Man United, fewer for Dortmund, but still a couple there. I've talked for a while now. Uh, Adam, where should we go next? You
2: know, from an old striker to a young striker, um, a transfer that I'm really interested in seeing how it works out is Ryan Brewster to Sheffield United. Yeah. So, Taking a little journey, and I assume that a lot of the people that listen to Total Soccer Show are also people that pay attention to a lot of U.S. youth teams and, and watch a lot of U.S. Youth World Cups. So taking a little trip back to 2017, which is, a, I think, a fairly fond memory for a lot of U.S. youth fans. We had a really good team at that 2017 U-17 World Cup. Obviously, Josh Sargent was a part of it. Uh You had the kind of a big, a bigger coming out party for Timothy Weah um, and that massive game he had in the knockout stage against Paraguay. You had people like uh you had people like Andrew Carlton, who was very exciting at that time on that team. You had people like Ayo Akinola on that team, James Sands was on that team, Serginho Dest was making kind of his first big appearances for the US national team on that team. So there's a lot of people on the US to be excited about. And they had a good team. And they went decently far. They made it to the quarterfinals. And then they got absolutely steamrolled by England. Absolutely mm-hmm. just crushed. And that England team had this kind of triumvirate, these three players that were kind of forming the big, exciting, attacking core of the team. And those players were Jadon Sancho, who quickly after that World Cup made his debut for Dortmund. And very soon after that, replaced Christian Pulisic as a starting winger for Dortmund. You had Phil Foden, who has since that time become an important player for Manchester City and won the trust of Pep Guardiola, which is no small feat for a player of 20, 21 years of age. And then there was Ryan Brewster, who made he won the Golden Boot in that World Cup. Uh, He had eight goals, I believe. Um, And I think he scored a hat trick against the U.S. in that game he was that kind of golden child forward. He was in Liverpool's academy. He was somebody that England was looking at. But since that time, he just hasn't been able to work his way up to the top of his organization in the same way that Sancho and Foden have. Obviously, starting for Manchester City or being one of the most sought-after commodities in Europe like Jaden Sancho isn't the same as scoring 10 goals for Swansea City. So... I'm very, very curious to look at this and see if now that he has an opportunity to be like, I'm the man here, I'm the person that's going to be playing a lot in the Premier League. What becomes of Ryan Brewster here?
0: This episode is supported by season three of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu.
2: What do you think does become of him? I am cautiously optimistic about how he will perform with Sheffield United, but I don't think he's going to be lighting the world on fire anytime soon with this team. I think people have caught a little bit. I think people have gotten a little bit more wise to Chris Wilder's Mm -hmm. tactics, which were, I mean, all the rage last year and people were obviously struggling to figure it out because they were so radically different um, than what, people had seen in the premier league at that point. Um, So I'm, I'm curious to see, I I think that it's fair to say that Sheffield United have lacked a little bit of a dynamic scoring threat in the team um, and have been possibly a little overly reliant on system to Trump all. Um, But I don't, that's, that's the thing. Like I, I, I'm, cautiously saying i think he might do well there but but i really don't know is is why i I think i'm very interested in it i Mm -hmm. i have no idea how this is going to turn out
1: but it sounds like you're willing like there's always those times uh was it was it garoppolo who was like brady's backup and everybody was like oh but he's in that system he's gonna be amazing maybe not quite as amazing as tom brady so there's always that idea that like that next generation could be the best thing and if you're getting them early they could kind of move to that next level but it might also be that there's a reason why their club was willing to let them go if you had to kind of come down on one side is it going to be success for him at Sheffield is it going to be moving to that next level that he wouldn't have been able to achieve as a backup or intermittent squad member for Liverpool or do you think it's a oh yeah he's there and maybe he moves on in a couple of seasons down the road but doesn't ne- necessarily jump up in our standing
2: I think that he will be a good squad member for Sheffield United certainly i just don't mm-hmm. know if he's going to reach the same heights as his english counterparts from that yeah. 2017 u17 team that was so good um and and it, i feel like he's going to have uh, almost like the uh, i guess i'll call it the the united states development track where you have A player that might reveal themselves to be really, really good, but you don't kind of realize it or you don't see it until they actually hit their mid 20s, as opposed to a lot of these young prospects that kind of set the world on fire when they're teenagers or in their early 20s.
1: All right. So uh, we've talked about Rian Brewster. We've talked about a lot of different players. We've only talked about Americans for a little bit in the very beginning. We're going to talk about one right now uh, because it was an interesting window for different Americans. Serginho Des moves to Barcelona, some other Americans on the move as well. But I want to focus in on Weston McKinney moving to Juventus, which is not a sentence I would have expected to say at the beginning of the transfer window. But here we are. Here We are. There's two things. It's it's odd. I want to focus on two things here, one of which will be my cynicism. The first one, though, is I'm still not entirely sure why why Schalke went for this, because they are, it seems, very likely to get relegated. I don't know how they're going to turn that one around. So I'm really happy he is no longer there, not trying to try to find a way to win with a, a very bad team around him, has instead moved to a massive club where he will get lots of experience one way or the other. Uh, but I still don't know why Shaka wouldn't hold out for a bigger sum when it was mooted that like Herza wanted him for some money. I think McKinney didn't necessarily want to go there. Other clubs passively involved like Southampton, but again, we don't know for sure. That he ends up at Juventus is sort of far and away the best case scenario in my mind. Uh, maybe not for Shaka, but for him certainly. But that said, this is where the cynicism comes back in. I still really have no idea what to make of this move overall. I can't even really predict, oh, it's going to end up really well. We had David Moyal of the Calcio podcast on. He was saying he thinks McKinney's going to play a lot of minutes for Juve. He thinks it's going to go well. But like it, that could very well be the case. I could see that reality. But we don't know if André Pirlo is going to be a good manager, if everybody is going to buy in, or if it's going to be a Thiago Mota sort of situation. So it could be that. They've got a lot of players, some veterans, some new. They've got a lot of talent of varying degrees. Does he play a lot of minutes? Does it work for Juve? Does Pirlo find success, does it all implode? I think there are so many unknowns or variables about a Juventus team that are still very likely to be very good. Like It's just there's a lot of strangeness in my mind with Juventus right now that could be very good but could also be the opposite of that.
2: Yeah, I think that something that people... I think a lot of people have echoed the sentiments of this is so odd, Yeah, just the move of Weston McKinney to Juventus. I think that what a lot of people, when they're trying to figure out How does Weston McKinney work? Where does he fit in? Is he going to succeed? I think that's something that a lot of people aren't talking about as much is how much that also rides on. Is Pirlo a good coach? And does he turn out to be a good manager? Or is he just a guy that has the the best talent in Italy at his disposal and is relatively competent kind of thing? Um, And I think that that question is going to be a big ask of... Pirlo and of Weston McKennie and of Juventus as a whole throughout this Serie A season. Um, if you saw Weston McKenny through his first two games with Juventus, obviously you have a rather impressive, I would say debut against Sampdoria and then maybe a game to forget against Roma uh, where he, I, I don't want to say he was purely at fault for at least one of the goals, but he was certainly partially at fault for a goal. Mm-hmm. Um, He's involved. He, yeah. yeah, he he was involved. Um, much in 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 a similar way of a you know a a child gets hurt and a parent is trying to figure out who in the game actually hurt him. You know, they, there are several <laughs> people involved. Um, that sort of thing. If you listen to Pirlo talk about Weston McKenney and why he was brought in, Pirlo is pretty straightforward about it. And I believe the the sentence that, that stuck out to me and what he said was, he works hard, which is absolutely yeah. true. You can't fault Weston McKinney on one thing, and that is the fact that he goes out and he works hard, and he's going to try to work harder than anybody else. And I think that in the beginning of the season, obviously that is something that has played to his advantage where he starts, even if he starts just because he is much more fit than other people in the squad. But you're going to come to a point where, okay, do I want Weston McKenney in the squad? Is he good enough in possession? Is he good enough as a central midfielder to keep somebody like Artur out of the squad, to keep Rabiot out of the squad? There are big name options in this Juventus squad in the central midfield position. And I mean, the question hovering around McKenney is is working hard and being somebody that is just going to go and get throw himself into tackles enough to keep him playing in this squad.
1: And to be honest, I think you sort of distilling it down to that point makes me feel better, weirdly enough, because I think it is almost a cliche at this point to say – uh, European coaches like American players, especially young American players, because they're very hardworking. They ha- they tend to have very little egos compared to their more big-name counterparts, and they're going to do whatever you ask. There's not a lot of complaining. That is the sort of stereotyped view of Americans coming to Europe. But I think that is kind of Weston McKinney. I think he's I, – I never – have concerns about his work ethic. And if nothing else, I think he is going to be constantly working to do what Pirlo asks, to prove himself in training. He's going to run his socks off. And it sounds like that's what Pirlo wanted, and that's what Pirlo is going to get. So if he's getting what he wanted, to me that means at least some positives there. So his his willingness to work and work hard does make me feel a little bit better about a move that I was still sort of confused by when we started this. So thank you for
2: that, Adam. Oh, you're absolutely welcome. At the end of the day, I think that Wes McKinney is – still 22 years old. So still relatively young. And he's coming from a bad team that didn't have a ton of identity. And I think that Pirlo and Juventus know that. So you look at Weston McKenney and what he already does so well, which is have a phenomenal engine, have the capacity for really good passing, have some insane athletic ability that other players can't replicate. Like, You know, you can train into people tactics and you can train into people. I mean, some players are technicians. You can't train the fact that Weston McKinney more often than not can outjump anybody on the soccer field on a corner Mm -hmm. kick. Like those are just certain things that he brings that other players can't duplicate. Now the question is, will a season with Pirlo and the rest of Juventus and in Serie A, which is notoriously... A, 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 a league where tactics and positioning on the field are are important, are just the kind of above the end all be-all of teams that are succeeding in the league. Can he take that knowledge and implement that into his game in a consistent way where we are not talking about does Weston Kenny make it at Juventus anymore? But does does Weston McKenny start for Juventus? Is Weston McKenny the most important person in the midfield because he has that athletic ceiling. Certainly. I think that nobody can deny that. It's just a matter of taking the other gifts that he has and marrying that to a consistency where we're not talking about his survival with a club anymore.
1: Yeah. All right. So, More reasons. So we've got reasons to watch Leipzig now. We've got even more reasons to watch Juve. Not that we needed more of them. Uh, I have talked plenty now,
2: Uh, Adam. I'm I'm guessing you've got a few more for us. I've got two. I think I have. I have two more listed as well. Lovely. I'm going to take it to MLS. All right. We have Christian Nemeth coming back to MLS with the Columbus Crew, and I thought that was really interesting. Not necessarily because of the player being transferred. I thought that was interesting because it seems like this kind of spells the end of Fernando Adi in Columbus. And that seems odd to me because of at one point, how important and how good Fernando Adi seemed to be in this league and how quickly that changed. If that makes sense.
1: It does. What What do you think were the like primary things that changed that? And what do you think Christian Nemeth does to sort of alleviate some of those concerns?
2: Well, I I think that purely on the field, it doesn't make a ton of sense to me how Fernando Adi's stock has plummeted like it has. Because in theory, his game is something that should translate decently well to getting older. You see this across the world where target strikers and strikers who aren't necessarily the people that rely so much on speed and quickness and guile and are more people that are very big and very strong and very consistent and good in front of goal, good with spacing, they can extend their careers well into his, well into their 30s. Fernando Adi is still only 29 years old. He turns 30 at the end of this week, which... It feels like... in That is crazy. Yeah, right? In theory, (laughs) he should still be somebody that at least is good enough to be on an MLS team. Yes. You saw him have some injury troubles towards the end of his time with Portland. You saw him in Cincinnati, specifically last year, have some substance issues. Uh, I believe he got... uh, He was charged with a DUI at one point and had to enter the league substance program. So I don't know if... It's purely off the field things. I don't know if I don't know if it's injury things. I was curious to see how a reunion with Caleb Porter in Columbus would go for him, but I think that with Christian Nemeth, you have somebody that can play forward, that can also play the wings, and is kind of a a, a flexible player to have just all the way across the attacking third, which was obviously important for Columbus, who have a very strong midfield, but. In the beginning, of slash in the beginning of the season, slash and MLS is back. You saw what can happen if you just have a couple injuries to their their core. Um, there were some questions that started being asked of their actual depth. So I think that obviously Christian Nemeth is is a is a decent move because he's shown that he is a good MLS player. He's no longer a player that I would say is like you're a starter or you're a yeah. you're going to be a, a vital member to this team in a way that you appear on a score sheet every single week in, week out, but he's definitely somebody that can do a job. And if that's all that Columbus really needs, it suggests that Fernando Adi is not a person that can do it. That can even just do a job anymore.
1: Yeah, and then with them, I think is 31 or thereabouts, so not significantly older than Fernando Adi, not past his prime or anything like that, or not like far past his prime. Uh, but then also, I do think this is an important thing, has a lot of familiarity with MLS, obviously. Um, and that's not just in terms of like knows the teams or knows what the style of play is, but is aware of the travel, of the physicality of the league, of everything that, that makes that league strange. So you're not bringing in a sort of 31-year-old striker from Hungary who has no experience but you expect could be good at least you know that there is is a body of work there that tells you he's familiar with the league he can function within it he can obviously score goals and help create chances so let's make it happen it's a good shout i like that one Uh,
2: just a quick stat for you on just just before i I let the finendo audio topic go just because I, i it still is is just surprising to me given how good he was at one point and and kind of how he was seen as one of the best strikers in the league i think at one point in time.
1: addy smash man i remember the addy smash he was he was like always scoring goals from inside 12 yards yeah. but and would he was score them at like 95 miles an hour shot and
2: he was always scoring braces like that was a thing for a while yeah. like he would, he would <laughs> yeah. only score in braces he was a vital member of the the 2015 timber squad that won oh. mls cup um and and came really close to scoring in that game i think it was a I think he hit the post or was a really good save on Steve Clark's part in that game. I can't remember exactly what happened there, but since July 6th, 2017, Fernando Addy has scored four goals in MLS league play. I'm sorry, four. He has scored four goals over the course of three different teams with Portland, with Cincinnati, and now with Columbus. He has only scored four times Since July sixth, two thousand seventeen,
1: I feel like his numbers are very confusing between his age and his goal scored. I would have expected them both to be very different uh, figures. Yep.
2: So that's kind of the mystery of the uh, the disappearance of Fernando Adi is is really something that was just interesting to me with this Christian Nemeth move.
1: You gonna put him on milk cartons?
2: Uh, You know, maybe we could try that. Uh, I try to get Nancy Drew on the case here. I'm, 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 I'm exploring my options. (laughs) Well,
1: while you do that, I'm going to take us back to the Premier League to talk about one of my two favorite moves. Or I think even more interesting, I just think they're going to be very good for their respective clubs, even if I have, as a Man United fan, a vested interest in them not working out. But the first one is Gareth Bale going back to Tottenham. I think this is such a smart move for Spurs. There have been some critics, there have been some people who have disagreed with my reasons for this. But I think overall, I think Spurs, first of all, just had a very, very good window. You bring in Joe Hart to be the experienced deputy, but knows how to win. I think Jose Mourinho wants him for the kind of personality and leadership he will bring and experience he brings. Uh, you deal with both of your fullback vulnerabilities by bringing in Matt Doherty from Wolves for a very low fee for a player who, with that amount of pre- uh, Premier League experience. On the other side, the aforementioned Reguilon comes in and kind of snaked away from Manchester United. I'm going to assume was pretty happy with that result, given the way the weekend went on his debut. Uh, Hoiberg seems like the midfielder that Jose Mourinho has wanted and is allowing Endombele to play a bit more the way he wants. I mentioned Carlos uh, Vinicius from Benfica, so now they have the backup striker. And then we have Gareth Bale on top of that. Gareth Bale has not yet played due to injury. I was reading yesterday that apparently Daniel Levy, upon finding out that Gareth Bale would not be able to play, negotiated another one million pounds off of his, uh, I think, wages. So (laughs) good work there from Daniel Levy. But that's another way in which they're sort of benefiting from Real Madrid having a bit of a crisis themselves. Uh, my argument was that basically Gareth Bale has not been out of the Mad- Madrid lineup because of injury necessarily, and so he would come in and sort of have a point to prove. Many people called me up on that point. He's had different injuries, is injured right now. And I agree, it still doesn't really change my point, is that this isn't a person who just cannot seem to stay fit no matter what happens. It's not that if he can stay fit, he'll be really good, but it doesn't seem like it's going to go that way. Like I would say like a Jack Wilshire sort of person who we keep thinking, okay, he's going to move to this club and that's going to be the time when it will finally click and then he has another injury. There's plenty of players like that. I don't think Gareth Bale is like that. I just think it didn't work out at Real Madrid. I still really can't give you a succinct answer. Experts like Sid Lowe can't even give you a succinct answer. They can give you lots of possibilities, but nothing definitive. And I just think you see... Even the way he's... I mean, they always cut to him after Tottenham score, after Tottenham do anything well, and he seems very happy to be there. He's used to sitting in the stands with Real Madrid, but pretty soon we'll see him back on the field, and I think he's going to plug in at a couple of different places when they need him to. He can deputize for Harry Kane. He can play out on the wing. He can be an impact player. He's very big. He's very strong and is fundamentally very, very good. And I just think overall Tottenham had a really, really strong window. I had them in the top four before the season began. I have them there still because of those moves and certainly for results like this past weekend. But I think Gareth Bale Really does elevate them more than just being a name that will sell jerseys.
2: Yeah, I think taking a flyer on Gareth Bale is obviously a, a fairly expensive and noteworthy flyer to take. But if he can recreate any form that he had at Real Madrid, really, that is going to be a big yep. deal for Tottenham because we're not that Agreed. far removed from Gareth Bale scoring one of possibly one of the best goals ever. <laughs> mm-hmm. in the Champions League final against yep. Liverpool. Um and, you know, on, on the injury point, I, I would agree he's not a person like uh like a Jack Wilshire who seems to be constantly hobbled by injuries. And notably it affects the way he plays even when he comes back from the injuries. I think that we've seen Gareth Bale have some injury issues here and there, but also managed to come back and still prove to be a useful, good player. It doesn't seem like he has been too significantly slowed down by them. So, sure, there's always going to be a question mark with somebody who has had rather a long layoff of playing and has had some injury question marks over the last couple of years. But if Gareth Bale can recreate any type of form that he had with Real Madrid, that is going to be a very, very scary Tottenham counterattack. Because you have Gareth Bale on one wing, youngman Son on the other, obviously. Harry Kane in the middle, who has shown, I think even more a little bit recently, his ability to pull out of the center and leave gaps in behind for min Son to just race into with how much speed and directness that he has as a player. And I think that if you have another person like that on the opposite wing, that is only going to be taking attention away from other people or if you focus your all of your attention on harry kane and hyung min song then you have gareth bale on the other wing that can also cause problems that's going to be a big deal for a a team under jose Mourinho, who as you know as as much as jose Mourinho is criticized for having a a defensive style i i would say you're the manchester united fan so you would know more about this than me Uh, i i think that that is a scary counterattack to have if he can recreate any type of that form, which, which is the big, if that's the big question mark regarding it, but past the memes and, and everything, the jokes that people have made about Gareth Bale at Real Madrid and the golfing and all of that stuff. I think that it's an open question to see, Hey, is Tottenham a legit top four contender with Gareth Bale in the lineup? And I mean, in a broader way, does that mean that we have a lot of actual legitimate top four contenders in the league this year?
1: I, I think we I think we do. I think we definitely do. Uh, some I did not expect to be top four contenders like Everton, uh, but I think we'll still have plenty in there. My final thing I wanted to say about Gareth Bale, I had made the argument uh, when Ryan and I were reviewing the All or Nothing Tottenham series that there were moments in that when you could tell that Jose Mourinho was... I think now, viewed through the lens of that Manchester United victory, or the victory over Manchester United, I think feeling a little bit hard done by the way things ended there, but I think also aware that this was sort of like maybe the last big club he would get if it didn't go well. I feel like he'll continue to be a manager, don't get me wrong, but I don't know if he still has that... Like, there's all those players talking, about, like, it's the biggest manager in the world. It's the biggest name in, in football. I wouldn't go that far, but you know what they're getting at. And so I think there's an element there of, like, he's going to work harder than he ever has because he has a point to prove. He's going to try to show he's flexible. He's going to do different things, Jose Mourinho. And I think to some extent, a lot of that applies to Gareth Bale, that it's another player who we thought was maybe going to be this world-class player, a potential Ballon d'Or winner, and then things don't go well. And it's now almost like, well, is he of a bygone era? Can he no longer do it? Is he just a bit outdated? Was he never really that good? And I think there's just a lot of, things aligning for him to come through and I think prove some doubters wrong is my opinion and sort of prove why he should have gotten a bit more respect from Real Madrid. So I think it's going to be a really good move, but even if it doesn't end up being a good move or a successful one, I think it will end up being fascinating no matter what.
2: Yeah, I agree with that. All right. I have one more transfer to talk about, and it's possibly the most obvious one on my list, but I think that it should be said nonetheless. And that is, Thiago to liverpool uh, okay and that's my in- i wasn't sure if that was going to be sarcastic no, and now i know it's not. no it is not I, my interest in it is twofold one is a tactical question of what jurgen klopp is going for and how this changes the makeup of what's made liverpool six so successful over the last couple of years and my other question is how on earth did any other team in the world allow this to happen <laughs>
1: It's ridiculous. It really is. It feels like one of those moves. I am not a fantasy player, but I know there are times when people will just be like, no, you can't have that guy. Like, your team is already too good. I'm just gonna, I don't even need that QB or whatever, but I'm gonna overbid because I don't want you to get them. It seems like somebody should have done that because adding Thiago to Liverpool... It feels like more it feels like a double slam dunk. I don't know how it feels that way or how that's possible, but it is, and it does. And
2: and you know, people have said like he doesn't fit the typical Liverpool profile where they like to buy younger typically. He is only the second player under Klopp, I wanna say, that they have purchased that was over the age of 26. But still the price that they paid, which was like 20 million pounds somewhere in there, felt very low. I'm surprised that Bayern sold that low.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I think Bayern, maybe recognizing he's not going to sign and it's sort of at an impasse, are then happy to take whatever they can, get whatever they can, and don't necessarily want to block that move. And I think they're also happy he's leaving the league. I still just don't know how that ends up occurring because I think Thiago will be a difference maker for Liverpool. And I think he brings a lot of what we've talked about with other players of having just the veteran expertise and know-how, but then the technical ability. And I've already said, like, I think he's going to be a manager someday. Just for little moments I've seen from him so far and the way he reads the game, the way he understands it, how seriously he takes it. Like I just think that's gonna be a relationship that totally connects and thrives under Jürgen Klopp. I won't be surprised if he retires in a few years and becomes Klopp's assistant. I, I, I just think it's again a really, really smart move in a number of different ways.
2: This is a complete aside, but there are there any other current players that you have kind of like picked out and thought to yourself, I hope that player becomes a manager.
1: Um, let me think. That's a good question. I'm sure there are. I I might have to stall for a moment because Tiago
2: is the one. Yeah, one of the people that I've always thought about, and I, I think that sometimes this answer surprises people, but I have not been able to get out of my head the idea of Romelu Lukaku as a manager. Interesting. Because he, first of all, is just an absolute nut for the game like listening to him talk and listening to like reading the things that he's written. It seems like he is in kind of the same way that uh Tyrion re is just like an absolutely voracious soccer fan and just can't hmm. get enough of it. The way that he is a insane polyglot and somebody that can go and immediately walk into a team in any number of countries and be able to communicate with the players there. Um, cause he speaks like seven languages, I think, um, it's not bad. seven or eight. Uh, it, it was wild. I remember in the last world cup, there were stories about him just never needing the, 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 uh, the translator earpiece because <laughs> people from all over the world were asking him questions and he would just kept switching languages. Um, and I, I think that Romelu Lukaku is a much smarter player than a lot of people give him credit for, especially yeah. coming off of the Manchester United days where a lot of people kind of... I, I think a lot of people were unhappy with him for, for various reasons. Mm-hmm. I keep going back to... There is this aerial view of the counterattack in the 2018 World Cup that gave Belgium the comeback win against Japan. And it was, it was probably the best game of the world cup. Um, but there was this, it was this counterattack where Japan had a free kick or a corner kick and it came out to Kevin De Bruyne and De Bruyne just started running with the ball. And they played this, this replay of it where you saw Romelu Lukaku basically orchestrate everything that occurred in the play without ever touching the ball because the first thing he does as Debrana runs down the right wing is pull out to the left and immediately a center back has to follow him. So he gives Debrana space to challenge a a defender one-on-one and dribble down the field with the ball. Then as they move closer to the ball, he pulls back across towards Debrana, pulling the other center back that had kind of been patrolling the space on his back shoulder with him. And mm-hmm. DeBrowne passes him the ball and Lukaku has the presence of mind to let it just run through his legs because he knows Nasir Chadli is coming in behind him. And Nasir Chadli takes the easy 1v1 with the keeper and scores and, and Belgium wins the game. And I can't stop thinking about that in terms of how positionally smart Lukaku is. In addition to all the other things I know about him, I feel like Lukaku has what it takes to be a good manager.
1: I think all of that makes a lot of sense. I think... It also makes sense that his time with Manchester United does, like, cast a shadow a little bit, and I think that is probably unfair because if I'm willing to say Jose Mourinho accomplished a lot with a team that probably shouldn't have been able to finish second, and then he doesn't get backed, I think – Romelu Lukaku probably accomplishes a lot in that same situation, only maybe an even more untenable one. Uh, And so I would would say then that if you kind of remove some of the Manchester United situation and look at him from a broader perspective, I think your take is pretty accurate, that there's a lot there to like, and there's a lot of reasons why he could be really successful. So I like that shout. I have two more for you that I thought of. Um, The first one is a little bit weird, but... Just from, again, from the all or nothing, it's the recency bias. But I like a lot of what uh, Hugo Lloris is as a leader in that locker room. And the way he seems to really be Jose Mourinho's deputy on the field, there seems to be a really strong relationship there. And it just seems like he is similarly so intense about soccer, about all things soccer. I wouldn't be surprised if he... And we have now Nuno as the example of a goalkeeper who can become a good manager. So maybe Hugo Lloris. And then there's a player who was sort of like, I think for like a two-year period of time was my answer to like almost every question. We did one about like, if you could draft any international to play for the U.S. national team, who would it be? We did one about if you could uh, have DC United sign any player, who would it be? And I think we did, if you could create an entire 11 of just one player, who would it be? My answer was the same for every single one, and it would be the same here. Arturo Vidal <laughs> is one that I would not mind seeing become a manager. I think he's got the... The attitude, the Sampoli level brashness, but then when you think about the managers he's played for, the clubs he has been a part of, and the success he has had it would be almost impossible to have not learned a massive amount along the way already. So I think him being now with Antonio Conte again at Inter, but there's Bayern, there's Barca, there's Juve before that. He has had plenty of experience and plenty of success. So Arturo Vidal is another one who I won't be surprised if he ends up coaching.
2: Sure. I think good shouts. And uh, back to Tiago, since that's where we were before we went on this. I mean, we just talked a lot and that's fine. But um, the other thing that interests me about Tiago was how this possibly changes up the way that Liverpool, plays because I think that Tiago is a little bit more possession based than most of the other uh, midfielders at Liverpool's disposal. And if that is a signal that maybe Klopp is looking to switch things up a little bit with his, uh, I mean the the heavy metal football style that he's become yeah. such so known for.
1: And that has been the criticism of them, especially this past weekend. I don't necessarily buy into it, but the idea that like, Oh, they don't have a backup plan. They don't have a way to adjust if things aren't working. I guess there is that argument that Tiago in the way he plays, how good he is and comfortable he is in possession, that maybe it could be a way to slow it down and kill the game off that way. Once the heavy metal has worked and you're up one or two goals, you can kind of have him be, be the tiki-taka demonstrator and see how that progresses.
2: Interesting, interesting things all around, regardless.
1: I think you said you had one more Taylor. I do. And it is weirdly my favorite move of the entire window. Uh, it is Edward Mendy to Chelsea ah. from Rennes for £22 million. Uh, I think this... First of all, I think Chelsea had a, a, an obviously very strong window. They spent a lot of money. But in this one, they don't spend a lot of money. But I think it is a pretty big statement because having spent the world record for a goalkeeper on Kepa not too long ago to then go out and invest not a paltry sum of £22 million for another goalkeeper... I think a lot of clubs, cough, cough, Manchester United, cough, cough, would have waited to sell another player. They would have want, wanted to get rid of things or they would have wanted to resolve kept the Kepa situation. And to some extent, I think there are clubs who would have just bought into the sunk cost fallacy. We've spent this money. We don't want to look stupid. We don't want to look like we don't know what we're doing. So we're just going to keep him and we'll try to figure it out and we'll try to adjust and we'll ask the manager to play differently. And to some extent, I think decisions like that can lead to an otherwise successful team sort of falling apart. Because if you can't do what you need to do as a manager, and if you don't feel like you're getting the backing financially otherwise, there can be that tension. It can lead to problems on and off the field. Chelsea basically saying like, yep, yeah, Kepa wasn't really the, the move we needed. We're going to bring in Edward Mendy. We're going to start him in his first two games. I think you're seeing them say like, yeah, it doesn't matter if we've invested the money. If it's not working, we will continue to spend. And I think in the player they bring in, they get an incredibly good goalkeeper for a amount of money that makes way more sense than Kepa ever did to me. And I I went back and watched uh, a decent amount of footage from Mendy at uh, Ren. Still not sure I know how to pronounce that properly. But I will say that the things that stood out to me are number one. I didn't quite realize how... Enormous he is. He is six foot six at least, but his wingspan is immense and he's got the frame to be able to come out and claim things that maybe other goalkeepers would not or other keepers could not. But I think the thing there is that his decision making backs up like his overall ability that he can come claim those, but he doesn't always do it. When he goes, he goes, when he stays, he stays. And you can contrast that with Kepa who sometimes will come and then backpedal and looks indecisive. It isn't quite sure. And I just think it is everything Frank Lampard wants in a goalkeeper, not to, not, to mention his distribution, which I also think is pretty good. I saw a lot of like long, driven balls over the top, into the channels, two players' feet. So I think distribution good, decision-making excellent, willingness to come out and claim crosses, claim chances, I think is a thing that Kepa didn't necessarily thrive on or didn't have the confidence in. And I think that he already has the backing of the manager will go a long way towards making him a strong player for Chelsea. Then they have the window they had. They bring in, I believe, every player in the world. Uh, and I think this was a great window for them. But Edward Mendy is sort of the the cherry on top, but also part of the icing as well. He's the exciting feature, but also a fundamentally important feature too.
2: It it does seem like a shockingly practical move, doesn't it? Right? Like, yes, it it, like just that, that you don't see super often. And uh, obviously you have a, a lot of uh, deep inner hurt as a Manchester United fan in this specific arena of your life. But... I, I, that's true. It, it does, especially from Chelsea, who have had a window where we are questioning, okay. How are all these parts going to fit together? You have a lot of people that you're like, yes, these are good players. Timo Werner is a good player. Kai Havertz is a good player. We know that. We just don't know how we're going to make them fit into this current Chelsea squad, what the best lineup for them all is, especially now that Christian Pulisic is back. Do you play Timo Werner as the forward still? Do you play Tammy Abraham? What's What's happening with all of your players and how you fit that together? Mendy is not that. Mendy is a time where we have said, all right, we have this keeper. He was expensive. We bought him. But at the end of the day, we need somebody that's more reliable and we're going to go out and and get that. And mm-hmm. I, I mean, it is interesting just for that fact that it does seem like so many teams do buy into more sunk cost fallacy type of situations. Um, and Chelsea just finally said, you know what, we're going to go. It feels... It feels a little bit more like a Liverpool move, uh, in honesty. Yeah, Where like yes, it does. We have a hole, we're gonna fill it. It's not an aspirational thing. It is just a we need to fill this neat. Um, which which I think that you see go missing a lot in today's game.
1: Yeah, yeah, you do. And I think that that's really well said as as we bring this one to a close, that I think the moves that really end up resonating that seem really smart. Sam Mewis would be one. Hamas Rodriguez would be one. Justin Klivert would be one. When you see clubs evaluating positions, evaluating vulnerabilities, and addressing them in a sort of not even ruthless, just but matter-of-fact way. We need this player. We need a player like this. We're going to go get that player. We might already have a player who plays that role, but they're not doing it well enough. We're going to go get that player. When you make those choices, some of them harder than others – I think it ends up being the smarter way to operate to make those difficult choices as opposed to wait and see. Sometimes the wait and see approach works. Sometimes it doesn't. And I think the teams that sort of made those decisions early and succinctly and definitively I think will benefit from them in this window but who knows maybe they will all fail spectacularly there's no way Sam US ever fails but everybody else <laughs> could go wrong and if they do maybe we'll have you back on to reevaluate some of these uh selections but for now Adams Navely thank you so much for taking so much time to talk about uh many many different aspects of the transfer
2: window absolutely Taylor and as always I love talking about how I am wrong on the internet so uh just go feel free to shoot <laughs> me that invitation and come back on